Welcome to Books on the Ridge, a production of Mount Zion Ridge Press, home of Books Off the Beaten Path. This is a podcast for our readers to get to know the authors of our books and look between the pages and behind the scenes. Plus, at the start of each month, we will offer readers a limited time code for a discount on the featured book. Your hosts are the co-owners and managing editors of Mount Zion Ridge Press. Welcome back. This is part two of our interview with J.P.C. Allen, author of A Shadow on Snow here at Mount Zion Ridge Press. I'm Michelle Levine, one of the guilty parties. And here's my partner in crime. Tamara Lynn Craft, definitely one of the guilty parties. And we're glad you came back. We hope you enjoyed part one of our podcast, Talking with Jennifer. And let's get right into part two. After we give you the code, we've got a discount code for $1 off of the print, ebook, and audio copies of A Shadow on Snow. The code is good through September 30th. And you want to put it in all caps, MZRP, that's Mount Zion Ridge Press, SHADOW, for $1 off. Make sure you take advantage of that code. And now, here's the show. So, the town where all this takes place, the county, uh, you, it's very clearly anchored in, in that part of Ohio, but is this an actual town with just a different name on it? Or did you kind of take different pieces like, okay, I'm going to take this street from this town and the city hall from this town and the market district from this other town and mush them together? How did it, how the town come about? My fictional town of Wellsville, that's the county seat for my fictional county of Marlin County, is largely based on the topography of St. Clairsville, Ohio, where I grew up. The library is right across the street from the courthouse. I changed up the streets a little bit, but that's the town I know best. So it was easy to imagine myself there and moving my characters through the streets. And since it's set in southeastern Ohio, it had to be really hilly. And that's what St. Clairsville is. And Marlin County is pulled from all the different southeastern Ohio counties. So it's rolling hills, it's woods, there's a state park. Um, It's fun to come up with fictional counties because you can throw in what you need when you need it. But I I love that part of Ohio. It's Appalachian, Ohio, and that's where I'm from. So that's what I wanted to write about. That's awesome. I love uh, Southeast Ohio, too. I think it's a really cool area of the country. It's not quite the South, but it it has the West Virginia, Kentucky feel to it. It's just an interesting place. I hear you did a lot of research for this book. Uh, Tell us how you went about that research. Well, when I finally, I wrote, like I said, I rose from the ashes fast. And when I decided I wanted to do more, I thought I've really got to learn about law enforcement. So the first thing I decided was to forget everything I've ever seen in TVs and movies about law enforcement, because I figured, you know, there was a 90% chance that would be wrong. And then I started doing my research. There's a couple books for specifically written for writers on law enforcement. And then I began calling 
law enforcement agencies. I called the Morgan County Sheriff's Department and talked to the chief deputy there about what it's like to police in a rural county. And he told me that, well, we're not quite Mayberry, but sometimes we get real close. (laughs) And then my home county, the Sheriff's Department offers a Citizens Academy. It's free. They select 20 people who apply. And for 11 weeks, I learned about law enforcement from a sheriff's perspective in Ohio. And it was utterly fascinating. And even more important, I got to speak to police officers. We don't have those in my family. We, um, I come from a long line of teachers. So it was interesting to learn why do they go into law enforcement? You know, what's their attitude toward law enforcement? And those really helped me build the law enforcement characters to make them seem true. And uh, I, still, I still read up on it. After the Citizens Academy, I asked the woman who does PR for the Sheriff's Department, was there an officer I could bounce specific questions off of, such as I needed to know how do police recover uh, items, stolen items that are taken to a pawn shop? Had no idea. I also asked, can Ohio deputies wear a mustache? Because I don't want to have my guy wearing a mustache and here you're not even allowed. All those specific little questions that came from my novel, I was able to ask an actual police officer. That sounds like a gold mine. What was the one thing you learned from these police departments that completely was different than what you thought it was? Oh, wow. Nationwide, the most dangerous thing to police officers are traffic accidents. We hear so much about shootings, but really they do so much with traffic that that's where they're most vulnerable. Uh, I talked to an officer and there was an accident and he was in the road managing the traffic and he got hit by a drunk driver. This drunk driver had nothing to do with the accident that he was managing. This was extra. And that that really surprised me. I also I like learning about like I said, why they do what they do. Sometimes it's a sense of duty. Some, some of these people have been in the military and then move into police force. I also like learning one man who's part of the county SWAT team. He talked about going down to the riots in 2020 in Columbus. And he was very honest. He said, there were 10 of us and 50,000 rioters. He said, I was scared. And I thought that that's interesting because you have all this training and you can still be scared as a police officer. And oh, and the other thing is, it's not as cut and dried as people think it is. When a police officer goes into a situation, he is constantly making judgments. It's not as if they have a rule book and it's one or the other. You have to constantly uh, uh, assess the situation and make the best decision you can often with your adrenaline surging and the situation constantly changing. Yeah, it strikes me as interesting, amazing, maybe a little disappointing, how different police action and police activities are, are portrayed on TV and in a lot of books, as opposed to what the reality is. Um, a lot of times, you know, listening to lecturers, they say, it isn't like it appears on TV. 
So it's, it's great when, you know, a writer take, and I bet the police really appreciate it when writers take the time to find out what the reality is and try to show mm-hmm. it in their books. Okay. I, I went to a mystery writers conference in Nashville called Killer Nashville, and they have a lot of law enforcement professionals. And the organizer said, don't be shy about asking them. They appreciate the fact that you're here and you actually want to learn what they do. And uh, I think that's a good rule if you're writing crime fiction. Yeah. Strong dose of reality. (laughs) Absolutely. So with all this research that you were doing, how long did it take you to write this book? I know you probably, like a lot of people, they, they write the rough draft, they put it aside for a while, they come back to it. So not counting all the gaps. Of course, that might, not, <laughs> that might not be your style. You may just, you know, write it once through and it's perfect. Send it off. How long did it take to write the book? Okay. Well, I'll have to give you the timetable as it unfolded. I started in December of 2019. And by March of 2020, I had about eight chapters. And then the world decided to call it quits. And I had to become the teacher for my son's. And then I'd write 40 pages and then I'd type up and then I'd go back and relook at those first eight chapters. So I do a lot of back and forth with reviewing what I've already written and then writing fresh stuff. I finally got it done right around New Year's Day 2021. And then I had three months of finding beta readers, hiring a freelance editor, polishing it up. And then I submitted it at the end of March. Wow. I'm the same kind of writer. I go back and forth. I can't write it straight through. I have to, as the story develops, redo what I already did to go with that. Yes. Yeah. What did you learn along the way? I mean, spiritually or your craft or improving your writing skills or challenging your imagination, whatever uh, life lessons you learned. uh, Why don't you tell us about that? Well, craft-wise, I learned I could plot. I was afraid I was more of a short story writer and couldn't come up with a big enough plot to sustain a novel. And I was really surprised when I found out I had too much plot and I had to pare it down. Spiritually, I feel like for some reason, the Lord wants me to write about him as people's dads. He's not just our heavenly father, he's our heavenly dad. And that's the underlying theme of these stories. I wrote A Rose from the Ashes thinking it was about mercy and forgiveness. 18 months after it was published, it hit me. It's a variation of the prodigal son in that Ray hasn't rebelled against her father. She's heard news of a father and she's going to look for him. And I think there's a lot of people out there who suspect there's more to this life than what's there, but they don't know how to find it. Or they've heard news that there's a God, but who is he? And I think that's what I've learned through my stories for myself, more about who God is, not only as the creator of the universe, but as my perfect dad. That's, I've never heard it phrased that way, but that it works. It, it, it suits the characters. Mal is just a great guy. He's, he's a lot of fun to watch him interacting with Ray, especially when he's trying to figure out 
how do I relate to a girl her age? I've got boys. <laughs> and but he's yeah. he does his best. He loves her, even though he hardly knows her. I love it. <laughs> well, that was that was another theme I realized, you know, as I wrote that he all once he found out that her mother was pregnant, he always felt that was his baby. And so he had loved her even when he thought she had died. And I, that's, God loves us before we get to him. And once we do accept Christ, then he, he, he's ours forever. That is great. I love how he's not embarrassed by Ray, even though, you know, what his past relationship came out and all that happened. Normally Mm -hmm. a man would, yeah, I love you, but this is, this is embarrassing to me personally or professionally or whatever. And I love how Ray's dad was like, yep, that's, that's who I was. And it resulted in Ray. And I'm happy about that. (laughs) Yeah. I, I felt like he would be so delighted to find her that he really wouldn't care about the rest. It's it, it was such a relief to him. So tying into that, you know, seeing God as our perfect father, did you run into any roadblocks along the way? Did you feel like somebody was trying to stop you from telling the story or maybe learning the lessons that you learned as you were writing it? Did you feel like there was something blocking you besides roadblock, besides writer's block and... <laughs> I didn't really accept, I kept doubting myself. Is this the story God wants me to write? Am I writing it the way he wants me to? I have a lot of doubt about my own skills or my own purpose. Am I writing for him or am I writing for myself? And it's something I still struggle with. And that's why when, when I have those doubts, I, I think, He wants me to write for him for some sort of kingdom purpose. Well, letting people know there's a perfect father, that sounds like a good purpose. And if I kept that in the back of my mind, then I could feel like I should be accomplishing this. Ray works in a library. What experiences have you had working in a library? Well, I grew up in libraries my parents always took me to libraries. So it was kind of a no brainer when I decided to get my master's in library science. I worked for 10 years around Ohio as a children's librarian in public libraries. And I decided to make Ray a checkout clerk at a library because first of all, it saves on research. I already know how that job works. And second, a library is a great place to run into all the characters I need her to bump into in a small town. It's a public setting. And uh, it also ties in with her desire to do research. She learns about research working at a library. And that'll tie into future stories too. It's just, yes, you know, anything she wants to find out, you know, plus there's all the, the, the web resources and I can, I can see more suspenseful things happening in the library, you know, little mysteries she has to figure out. Maybe, you know, somebody steals a rare book. 
not that I'm giving you plots for future <laughs> books, but <laughs> a library is a great setting. Of course, I love the Aurora Tea Garden series on Hallmark, and she's a librarian. Okay. <laughs> well, one thing, one thing a lot of people don't realize is, especially historical uh, documents, they're not all on the internet. Ray in A Shadow on the Snow is researching something that her mother's past, which is about, you know, 20, 24 years ago. Well, a little local library can't put all the past newspapers on the internet. Uh, so she uses microfilm. That, and that's what libraries have because it's expensive to put it on to, uh, uh, to digitize it. And um, I don't think people realize when they do research, you can't just Google it all. I realize that. <laughs> As a writer of historical novels and the person who's poring over historical journals and the uh, physical library, yes, I can relate to that. Now, the most important question of this podcast. It will answer whether we can continue with this relationship or not. Just kidding. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> what she is your favorite that. tea? I like Irish breakfast or English breakfast tea. Awesome. Irish breakfast is the bomb. Love it. <laughs> and, do, and do you get out all the tea leaves and, and or do you just buy bags no. of filler? <laughs> I, I, I buy the bags, although there's um, a little place in Columbus that does high tea. So I have gone there and done the whole ritual with the you know, tea leaves and you pour the hot water over them. Oh, yes. There's nothing better. Okay. Well, then we can continue with you <laughs> as one of our authors. <laughs> if you said, I don't drink tea, it would have been questionable. <laughs> well, we, we just have to educate her. Yes, exactly. <laughs> exactly. I assume that, you know, every writer is also a reader. So what's your favorite novel? Or, or just maybe a series of books. Who, who's your favorite author if you can't pick, to pick a particular novel? This is really tough. <laughs> um, a favorite novel for me is one that I'll reread. So I love Watership Down by Richard Adams, The Time Machine by H.G. Wells, Death on the Nile by Agatha Christie, uh, The Father Hunt by Rex Stout. Some of my favorite stories are short stories because mystery genre has a long and proud tradition of great short stories. So I like the novellas by Rex Stout, the Father Brown Mysteries, the Uncle Abner Mysteries by Melville Davison Post. One of the best mystery short stories ever written is called The Long Way Down by Edward D. Hoke. I had not, and I've read lots of mystery short stories over the years. I had never read that before May of 2020 and it blew me away because then I'd go back and see how he put it all together. Okay. Given us a lot of author names for our listeners to look into and investigate. Maybe, you know, they've never, they've never read a mystery before or, or they, um, they were, scared by the required reading in high school and so maybe this is an this is a chance to try the genre again well if the novel intimidates you try the short stories 
And you've mentioned some of my favorites and your favorites, because <laughs> I love reading mysteries and I love suspense too, but uh, I've really enjoyed those. And when I was a young teen, I remember devouring Ellery Queen mysteries and, and uh, all of those Sherlock Holmes mysteries, Father Brown, Agatha Christie, all of those just, yes, you brought up some memories. <laughs> <laughs> So what is your process for writing? Any rituals you do before you start writing? Maybe have a cup of Irish breakfast tea or some other ritual? Uh, I don't really have any rituals. In March, a, a writing friend and, and I tried to do our own version of NaNoWriMo, just blast out the first draft over the month of March. I discovered that is not my style. I do about five or six chapters handwritten. I have to handwrite my first draft. And then I type up those five or six, see if they held up. Then I write the next five or six, type those up. Okay, now I've got about 12 that'll stand up. And I keep keep doing that till I get to the end. So like you, you discover things along the way. So as you're handwriting, so when you put them into the computer, you can make little changes and maybe foreshadow things. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah, there's a big difference between the handwritten first draft and the typed up second draft. And then (laughs) then you start adding in layers. Yeah. You know, dialogue tags, sensory description. Each time I go back and look at the chapters, I can see I usually overwrite dialogue. They talk too much. So when I go back, I'm cutting things out so that my characters aren't so chatty. Uh-huh. Where do you write? Do you write in an office with a big bookshelf behind you? Or, or do you write on the kitchen table? Or do you write on napkins anywhere you can find? <laughs> Where do you write? And what does it look like? I write anywhere I can even though I do have a desk in an office, but it doubles as the exercise room and the mud room. But because I'm on the go so much, I write in doctor's waiting rooms. I write at soccer practice. I write in the car while I wait for my son to get done with band practice. I've learned I have to write anywhere in order to write anything. I usually, I I just use college rule loosely leave paper and go from there. That works. (laughs) (laughs) I know I've, I had to learn for quite a few years. I learned to write on the um, bus and on the train heading downtown to the office where I was working at an advertising agency. And if you can write with the bus bumping down the road, you can write (laughs) anywhere. (laughs) Did you get ideas for your characters from that bus ride? (laughs) I tried to ignore the people I was riding with. (laughs) I see. We are wrapping up our two-part podcast. So looking ahead, um, Mm -hmm. not just for Mount Zion Ridge Press titles, although we hope you'll be with us for a long time, but what are your plans for the future, near future and long distance once your next book comes out because shadow on the snow has been out since Christmas, basically. So what's next after this, this next story about Ray? 
Well, I'm hoping after a storm in summer, I'd like to do one set in October and work in Halloween. And um, I have some other ideas. Ray's grandfather, her father's dad, he was killed a bar, at a bar and the killer was never caught. And so there's a story there. Um, in fact, her great-grandfather was actually initially accused of it. At least I think so. Sometimes when I sit down and write, it changes. But also, like you said, she's attracted to two, of, two young deputies. And so her developing relationship with them. And uh, I also, I love small town secrets and old crimes that resurface. So there's another Halloween one about an old house in the Carlisle family and there's fresh crimes and how does it all tie together? Uh, so I've got, I've got a lot of ideas that I'm, I'm really hoping to, to get into books. I, Good. And I'm not sure why I always tie it into holidays, but it just seems to make sense. Well, you know, holidays are pretty evenly scattered through the year. So that, that works. It gives readers a sense of the passage of time and an anchor. Yeah. So yeah. we are really happy to have you on our podcast today. And, we and are part really, of our family. And, yes. <laughs> and we are really happy to have you in our publishing family. Do you have any parting words? Well, I'm just thrilled that I'm part of your publishing family. I think I've had it in the back of my mind to, to be a novelist since I was in high school. So for that to finally come about is amazing to me. And I just, I just hope I can keep writing about Ray and her family and their friends and enemies and uh, people will enjoy the trip. Oh, I'm looking know forward to it. <laughs> yes. Join us next week as we talk to Diane Virginia about her Bible study, The Kiss of Peace. Thanks. Bye. Thanks for listening to Books on the Ridge, a production of Mount Zion Ridge Press, home of books off the beaten path. Check our website, www.mountzionridgepress.com, for more information. Please consider subscribing to support this podcast. Plus, receive regular updates and more discounts as our way of saying thanks. Please come back next week for a new discussion with another Mount Zion Ridge Press author. Thanks for listening. We hope you had a good time. We certainly did.